0: You have your bibles go with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This will be the last Sunday Lord willing that we will be in Ephesians chapter 4. As we move on to chapter 5 next week by God's grace. Something that Christianity has missed in our culture, I think, for at least at large, for many decades, is how we live as Christians, specifically the motivation and the power and the reasons for why we live the way we live. The majority of the church context, in church culture, in our context, rather, uh, is largely legalistic. We do these things because God told us to. And certainly, that's a, a, a good reason. I mean, God commands us to do things. We should listen. Um... But if it's just for law's sake, then we miss the point of the gospel. Is even the law in the Old Testament was meant to display something greater. It was meant to display, ultimately, the character and the glory of God. And so, the reason we live out what God has called us to do is not just because God said so, but because we are image bearers of God, and this is how God is. And if God now resides in us, then this is now how we live. And we live now not because He's given us rules, but we live now because we understand that this standard, that this way of living, is His graciousness to us. And so we delight in God's ways because we are His children and because He has set us free to do so. So with that said, as we work through all these passages, I want to keep reminding us, even as we push into chapter 5 and chapter 6, there's going to be lots and lots of do's and don'ts and do's and don'ts and do's and don'ts. And we have to remember that all of the do's and don'ts are in response to chapters 1, 2, and 3. And I'm simply not going to have the opportunity to rehash 1, 2, and 3 every single week. We don't just do these do's and and, and forsake the don'ts because that's just what Christians do. We do these in response to God's work in chapters 1, 2, and 3, which is ultimately... Meaning what we do is in response to who God is and what he has done. Paul, on a very microscopic level, is going to say this very thing specifically today. And so, today, what we're going to work through is going to give you a very good understanding of how, if you do not understand the gospel You cannot be rightfully obedient to God. That in order to be rightfully obedient to God, that you must understand the gospel beyond just simply some means of avoiding God's wrath that you affirmed at some point in the past. Meaning the gospel means more than just that. It means something for today, whether you've been a Christian for two days or two decades or half a century It means something for today. Let's read chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. Let me actually do this. I'm going to jump back up. It won't be on the screen, but verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The next exhortation, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Third exhortation, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the for the building sorry, only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And now this fourth major exhortation: let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now let's pray. Dear God, dear God, we have been forgiven so much, those who are in Christ Jesus. Fathers, we'll look at today that even while we were enemies, Jesus died on the cross for our offenses against you and him and the Holy Spirit. Even while we hated you, you've worked in a way To forgive us. Let that be the tone at which we approach the text this morning. It's in your son's name that we are even able to speak to you today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Verse 31 and 32. Let's reread those. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Let's work through, very quickly, verse 31. We're we'll to spend most of our time on verse 32. As we think about these first words, he says these, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be be put away from you. First of all, bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness is the thing that we all think we don't struggle with, and and indeed we all do, at least to some extent. Right now, I guarantee you, at least half of you in this room go, I don't have any bitterness in me right now. And the reality is, is, yeah, you probably do. And the fact that you're denying that you do is The reason probably why you have it. But bitterness is, I want to be careful that the intensity of this language doesn't then allow you to just simply sign off that I don't have it. But I'll start with the intensity and kind of work backwards. A state of intense resentment. A state of intense resentment. So now let me work backwards from that. Because I, I think there's, there can be like different degrees of bitterness. And I think that's part of what he's talking about here in this text. That what he's, what he's working through with these examples is kind of a, a crescendo of, of uh, bitterness. That bitterness kind of starts out rooted here, and then it becomes something else. And then it works into something else, and eventually into malice. But this idea of bitterness... So let's work back from kind of the intensity and kind of see a little bit of maybe where we have at least the beginnings of bitterness in our heart frequently. How about a coldness towards someone else? A coldness towards them. How about that? Kind of a, uh, you know, I just want to kind of avoid them and I don't really care what happens in their lives. How about glasses shaded in annoyance or disgust towards someone else? When you see them, you just can't see really what's going on there because everything's so shaded by some kind of disgust or annoyance or frustration. So we think about bitterness. that It's not just this, oh, I hate this person. But there can be the beginnings of bitterness. Again, I'm willing to bet that all of us have, even at this very moment, some level of struggle with bitterness. And I'm willing to bet, even with someone potentially in this church, You see, relationships are easy when you don't really know someone. And that's the way our world kind of functions. We can just kind of say hi, and we can kind of get together for a reunion every once in a while, and we all have great friendships. But there's people you have to actually do life with. That's the ones that start to get on your nerves, right? Those are the ones you start to figure out that they're sinners, and that they do evil things, and that you now have to actually apply the gospel in your relationship. Imagine that. Then he moves on to wrath, anger. I think he's kind of using these synonymously here, but a burning desire deep within, and this is where I really need you to catch this. This burning desire deep within for the hurt of someone else. Right? It may not be the physical hurt of someone else, and it's probably more the spiritual, emotional, or mental hurt of someone else. In pra- like Practically, it's probably where most of us feel this kind of wrath and anger. And it might be hurtful as well, or physically hurtful as well. But that's why I really need you to catch this. So mark that down on your brain. Wrath and anger, this burning desire to see the hurt in whatever way that may look of someone else. Basically, the desire for ill in someone other, some other person. Third, he goes on to his idea of clamor. What is clamor? First of all, I think what we're beginning to see now at this point, at this point, bitterness crescendoing into wrath and anger, crescendoing into clamor. What's happening with clamor? Clamor means kind of the loud scream or shout. But I don't think that it means just the the idea that we're screaming and shouting about other people, although I'm certainly sure that y'all have seen at some point even in your own life this bitterness and wrath and anger crescendo into clamor. But I think what more more importantly the picture he's drawing here is that there's this view of a lack of restraint. That, it, that this, what's going on here is that with clamor, the desire in the heart is now coming out. So with bitterness and wrath and anger, those are all still can kind of be like wrapped up inside here. But now clamor means it's coming out. There's this lack of restraint, I think is the picture he has in mind here. And then along with clamor, we have this idea of slander. Now, now, listen to this. Be, be very careful here. I think we so tightly define these kinds of words so as to avoid feeling guilty and uh, uh, sinful ourselves. Slander is when you're speaking ill about someone else. But I think we're very quick to relegate that to speaking ill of someone else to a third party. What about this? What about slandering someone to yourself? What about slandering someone else to yourself? What's that look like? Continuing in cyclical fashion to repeat and rehearse the slanders of someone else in your own mind, convincing yourself of their guilt. Imagine how, I mean, how bitterness and this stuff kind of plays together. I mean, it's real. I mean, we see this very evident. When, when we don't want to actually hear what someone else has to say, what we typically do is we begin, we begin to slander them in our minds so as to justify ignoring what they have to say. Well, they're not, they're not really that good of a person, so how can they speak anything of truth to me? How can they actually know the sin that's in my life? Or how can they actually know what's going on in my life? Because, you know, they like that silly TV show that has nothing to do with my life situation. And we begin to justify these things. But how about slandering them to ourselves? How about slandering them to your spouse? I think it begins with slandering to ourselves, and then it works from there, usually to the people that are closest to us. Or maybe your closest friend. I just want to call it what it is because you are abusing another person with your words. You're abusing another person with your words. So bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. All of this is meant to represent your own heart level desire to see evil done in a brother or sister's life. And again, I think our problem is that we limit our concern in this passage to the extreme fruit. Like the actual slander and doing of harm. But the reality is, is it all begins with the resentment and the coldness towards someone else. So even in our wonderfully unified church, I just want to tell you, there is too much dissension in us and around us. And here's the deal. That will always be the case, but that doesn't make it okay. We will always struggle with dissension in us and around us. But it will never be okay. And we should always work to eradicate it by the power of the gospel. There are still times when we all grow cold towards someone else. And the longer we do life with each other the greater chance this will happen. The greater chance that someone else will sin in a way that you just utterly dislike. Right now even, I'm willing to bet that some of us are growing in disgust towards someone else in the body as we speak. And maybe have been for months or even years. I want to point out to you, as we talked about in the marriage conference, I know all of you weren't there, but I'll repeat this. Listen, when you struggle with bitterness towards someone, I I want you to understand that you are seeing them functionally as an enemy. Like you're beginning to see them as someone who opposes your delight and happiness, your kingdom, your pursuit of joy, whatever the case is, and they begin to become a threat and what do we do with threats? I was watching the final chapter of Person of Interest last night, and the machine relegated the original creator of the machine as a threat, and it began to do things to get rid of the threat, to alleviate the threat, and that's what we do in our own lives. When we begin to get bitter at someone, we eventually get to the point where we're devising schemes to get rid of the threat, are the th- the, what do the schemes look like? It might look like slandering them so that people don't listen to them, people don't like them either, and they like you better. Or it might look like just leaving. I mean, have you seen that in a church? Usually, a lot of, not usually, but a lot of times when people leave churches, it's because they had never actually dealt with their own bitterness. And so the only way to deal with the people that they're bitter towards is to leave. But that's not actually dealing with the bitterness. It's just putting the bitterness in a closet. That's going to come out on someone else later. So these people who are struggling, like the the people that you're struggling with bitterness towards, I want you to see has functionally become like enemies to your selfishness, your kingdom, your way of life. Again, just because they're not trying to murder you, you still have this mindset of opposition towards them. Now, the last thing I want to say as we work into verse 32 is that I want you to warn you, Paul is going to press into our hearts once again. So if you've been uncomfortable the past few weeks, it's just going to continue. Again, we tend to think, right, we tend to think that the way we deal with bitterness and there are all these subsequent fruits, we just go talk to the other person. He's going to go talk to the other person. Right? I mean, am I am I the only one here that's kind of the the way it was generally taught that you deal with bitterness with another person? You just get to talk to him. It's interesting. Paul says nothing of that sort here. Nothing of that sort. Isn't it interesting that the way we have learned to deal with bitterness, Paul just happens to forget that right here. He happens to forget the whole part about going to the other person. Now, I want to tell you, though, like, 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 here's what we think. What we think is, the reason, I think the reason why we're motivated to go deal with bitterness on the other person, because we think that our bitterness is their fault. I'm angry, and so if I can get them to apologize and fix themselves, then I can get over my bitterness, So all of that hinges upon my ability to persuade them of their wrongness. Then my bitterness can be taken care of. Paul happens to leave all of that thought out. So either Paul's missing something and you and I got the edge on Paul. Or Paul wants us to think about this in a totally different way. This is not what Paul is saying. I would argue this is not what even the broader scriptures teach. Certainly now, even my caveat, there are times where we do need to go to a brother or sister who has offended us. Matthew 18 talks about this. But the bitterness, anger, clamor, slander, this is coming from somewhere else. It's not coming from them. It's coming from your fleshly, Selves. And that's what Paul, I think, is pushing us towards here in this text. That this bitterness and the fruits that come from that is because you're not dealing with something in your heart the right way. You're looking at the situation going, I'm bitter because they've wronged me. Now look, they might have wronged you and that needs to be dealt with, but you're bitter because something is in your heart, does not understand and believe and treasure the gospel. And that's what I want to show you today. Paul links in this passage something very key. He kind of puts two things together for us. Not only does your bitterness and such come from your own heart, but indeed it comes from a fundamental misunderstanding and disbelief of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what I want to give to you today, largely, but most of our times be concentrated here, three practical evidences of gospel understanding and treasuring. Three evidences from this passage that you are understanding and treasuring the good news about Jesus Christ. Look at thirty-two. He says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another What? as God in Christ forgave you D- does he say be kind and tender hearted forgiving one another you know go to your brothers and sisters so that you can help them become this way so that you can be kind towards them So that you can fix them and so that now you can be kind and tender-hearted towards them. No. He's saying be kind and tender-hearted forgiving one another because of something completely external to our circumstances. Because God in Christ forgave you. That's the Gospel. I want to encourage you that just like The fruits of the Spirit, I believe, are all one kind of package together. I think Paul intends for these to be a package together. That you can't just be kind to one another without tenderheartedness. That you can't be tenderhearted towards someone unless you're also forgiving. You can't show kindness without being forgiving. If you are, you're probably just being manipulative. Manipulative. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, they come together. So, the first thing, the first practical evidence, the gospel is being understood and treasured when you display genuine kindness, particularly toward your enemies. That's why I defined enemies earlier. We tend to think of enemies as just, you know, whatever the media portrays as our enemies. But we can begin to see the people around us as enemies. And certainly, if they're opposing our selfish pursuit of our own kingdom, then they will be enemies to that. But he says, this kindness, this kindness is certainly the opposite of bitterness, right? Kindness is certainly the opposite of clamor and slander and wrath. So let's, let's look at this. God demonstrates this very clearly. This idea of kindness. He demonstrates this very clearly to His covenant people, to His children. You go look up Jeremiah 33. The prophets speak of the amazing kindness of God in the face of what? Of Israel's perfection? In the face of Israel's sin? Right? That God is kind to them even in the midst of their sinfulness. Romans eleven twenty two, the first part of that verse. I want you to note in there. You can go. The he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. So now so we think, and, and, and I would encourage you. One of the exercises you need to do is go scour the scriptures looking for passages that talk about kindness, particularly kindness of God. Because fundamentally what he's saying here is that if you're not kind, it's because you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand who God is. You don't understand how kind God has been to you. So now we, in response to his, His kindness... Put on this new man of kindness. Guys, you cannot simply, let me remind you here, cannot simply be kind. You realize that? You know how many of us just kind of, well, I just got to muster up strength to be kind. Here's how that works, right? It happens once, right? And then you're back to just being mean again. Or what happens is that the other person knows that it's incredibly fake. That you just mustered up this Uh, kindness, and they can see right through it. You can't just simply go be kind. It has to be a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, you can read that later as well. And I want to remind you that any fruit of the Spirit is always going to be in response to the marvelous work of God. Any fruit that He's going to bring about is not going to be just out of nowhere. It's going to be as we love and treasure Knowing God. We know His kindness. Fruit of the Spirit, He works to bring about kindness in our hearts. If you know not the kindness of God, you will not see the kindness of the Spirit in our lives. But if you understand the kindness and treasure His kindness shown to you in the Gospel, you will be kind. Show me someone who is unkind. And I'll show you someone who does not know and treasure God's kindness towards him or her. Usually, because we don't think we need the kindness of God. That we're okay without the kindness of God. This is why understanding doctrines like total depravity, the fact that we were enemies of God, unable to do anything pleasing to Him, and yet He shows us kindness. Kindness. Let me ask you this question. Like, when you think about God's kindness towards you, does that stir up anything in your heart? Does that stir up any kind of affection? Does that begin to move you in any kind of way? Or is it just kind of like, oh yeah, cool, he showed me kindness. If that's the case, you don't get it. You just don't. Ask him to help you get it. He showed you kindness. If you're one of his children, he showed you kindness. So what is this, what's the meaning of kindness? What is the, practically, what is is kindness? The real meaning of kindness, like what we're getting at here is is to be useful to, to be helpful to others, to be benevolent towards someone else. Now realize, this means service unto that person, not service for selfish reasons. But kindness, a kind man, a kind woman, is one who is useful and helpful and benevolent toward other people. You're giving toward other people. You're generous toward other people. So let's go back to the idea of bitterness. Who's that person that you're not helpful and benevolent to? That when you see them, that your speech is not loving and benevolent to them, is gratuitous and, and kind and helpful to them. So this idea of what, that which is useful or helpful, it's always valuable. You know, think about it this way instead of always being on the lookout for something you can find fault in, being kind is the idea of looking out for something you can praise. Being helpful to other people. So if you're looking for a sub-point here, be always on the lookout for an opportunity of showing benevolence. Of showing kindness, being useful to. Think about how you could be useful in your words to someone else. Imagine someone's having a bad day, having a bad morning. How can you be useful to that person with your words? How can you be useful to someone who's in need? Robbie called me yesterday. His air conditioning and went out. <laughs> I may owe you a dollar after this, cause I didn't ask for permission to use this example. But so I'm on the phone, and like, uh, hi, dude, well, let's let's do this, 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 and this, and we'll get it fixed." And I'm like, "How hot is it in your house?" He's like, "It's 81 degrees," and I'm said, I'm, "I'm sitting here sweating for him," and as my house is 70, you know, and uh, so I'm like, "All right, we gotta, we gotta do this," you know, and. And then, and then he's like, like, I don't have time for that. Get pictures and stuff for the family, and, which is awesome. But he's like, I'll just deal with it tomorrow. And I, so, but I was trying, I wanted to be kind, but he wanted to sweat. So it's like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to release my schedule too, you know? He'd, I'm like, oh, man, I would die. I would not sleep tonight. Uh, nothing. I'm a, a wimp when it comes to that. Except for when I go into Haiti. God works marvelously to make me deal with it there. So, Be always on the lookout for an opportunity of showing benevolence. Because if you display genuine kindness, motivated by the right reason, the kindness of God, then this is evidence of understanding and treasuring the gospel. Okay, So if you wanted to learn how to be kind, Go study the gospel. See God's incredible benevolence to you. Second example. Second evidence. The gospel is being understood and treasured when you are genuinely tenderhearted, particularly towards your enemies. Tender-hearted. This is in opposition to a callous, hard, embittered heart. Right? This is in opposition to that. So let me ask you this question. There a couple questions here. How bothered are you at someone else's unfortunate circumstances? Whether that's the poor man begging for food on the side of the road, Or that's the troubles in a brother or sister's family. Or a family without air conditioning in 85 degree weather. How troubled are you by their unfortunate circumstances? What I mean is, how concerned are you about other people? How concerned are you about other people? See, see I think, guys, here's the, here's the thing. and I'm saying this because I struggle with this myself. My typical mode of operation, our typical mode of operation is to be judgmental and condescending rather than tenderhearted and caring. Now, there might be reason and mean uh, and the purpose of of declaring this is wrong and then we should change this so I'm not alleviating the judging part but I'm talking about the condescending judgmental piece rather than being tender-hearted seeking to care showing kindness to them like like are you sympathetic towards others have you got a here's another way have you got a Great heart of compassion toward them. See, I, I, it reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 9.36. When it says, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them. This is the same idea. He, had, he, had t- he was tender-hearted toward them. Because, why? Why? They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now listen, Jesus could have looked on them and said, well, they're all sinners and deserving of hell. And that was indeed true. He could have said that, and that would have been truth. But instead, what does He do? He looks on them with compassion. He has a tender heart towards the unfortunate state of which they are in. Like, you can see so much the troubles of others that you oftentimes forget your own troubles. Are you tender-hearted towards others? Listen, if you see and treasure God's tender-heartedness toward you, then you will be sympathetic to the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Show me someone who's not tender, man or woman. And they don't know the tenderness of God towards them. Like we should have strong, deep, driving compassion. I mean certainly there's lots of motivations going on in Christ as He's on His way to die for these people understand that Jesus for all of eternity and all of eternity going forward has experienced the tender heartedness of the father toward him not because not in a sinfulness right because he was perfect so he knows this 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 love and tenderness of the father and the spirit and so when he comes to die for these people he has tenderness for for these people why because he knows nothing else from the father except the father's tenderness and the reality is, is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ you will know nothing other than the tenderness of the father why because he forgave you in Christ let me ask you this question. Do you avoid the struggles of other people? Or is there that particular person that you just, like you're teetering on the edge of not caring about their circumstance and maybe even venturing into wishing that something might happen. Something bad might happen at whatever scale and in whatever intensity that might be. But do you avoid the struggles of others? I think one practical way in our current context that we can think about this is do we get intimately involved with other people so as to even know their struggles? So as to even know what's going on in their life? Do we let other people in? Do we give other people VIP access to our hearts? where they can even begin to show us tenderness. Instead, what happens, though, is we we tend to stand back a good distance where it's safe and comfortable and just kind of dip our toes in the water. And then usually in doing that, we tend to then judge condescendingly the people around us. But we should have strong, deep compassion. Strong, deep tenderness that drives us in caring for other people. Third example, or third evidence. The gospel is being understood and treasured when you are genuinely forgiving, particularly towards your enemies. Listen, I, we're going to just pull out the sandpaper for the next few minutes, if we haven't already for you. This is the opposite of malice. This is the opposite of malice. This means, like, here's what I need you to think. Think back when we were working through bitterness, wrath, like you need to be thinking right now that he is juxtaposing, he is contrasting this idea of feeling bitterness and wrath and ill will towards someone Versus being forgiving and kind and tenderhearted. And listen, he's telling us to be this without exception. So you can keep those couple things in mind. But this is the opposite of malice. This means if we're going to begin getting at this idea of forgiving, we must realize that men and women are what they are because of sin. We're going to look at our brothers and sisters. We're going to look at people even outside the church or people who do not follow Jesus. We need to look and see what they are because of sin. That they are what they are because of sin. Now, here's the deal. This is not about not seeing anything wrong. And you've got to get that out of your mind for a moment. This is not about avoiding and being unrealistic about sin. Christianity is the only way to be realistic about sin. So Paul is not saying here, pretend that the other person has done no wrong. Right? It's not what he's saying. So just get that out of your mind. You need to make sure that that's not lingering in there. That is not forgiveness. It's not what he's talking about here. As instead, forgiveness is actually realizing in the Full, or to the fullest extent the wrong that someone else has done and then forgiving them. Now what you think about this. Only a Christian can do this. Only someone knows that God understands my sinfulness to its fullest extent and yet He forgave me. Someone who is not experienced and knows that is not able to do that for someone else. Guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have new eyes through which to view people. You have new lenses. Like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, Before, we saw Him as a person who was doing Him harm. Now he sees him as a victim of sin, a pawn, and a dupe of the devil. And he says, yes, he is like that. And I was like that. And there are relics and remnants of that in me still. Who am I to say, I will not forgive that man? See, only a Christian can do this. You know, God's forgiveness is the model of our forgiveness. It should be the model for our forgiveness, the paradigm for our forgiveness of one another. Now listen, I know, here's what we we do. Well, I'm going to be the better person and forgive this person, right? That's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk away the better person. So we kind of stick our nose up in the air and we go, all right, I'm going to forgive them. Right? That's what we do. It's not what I'm talking about here. Because the, qu- the question would be, is there still bitterness? Is there still wrath in your heart for that person? If there is, it don't matter how high you stuck your nose up in the air, you've not forgiven that person. You're s- still nothing more than self righteous If you don't understand and treasure the forgiveness of God and respond in that, likewise to a brother or a sister. You see, someone who understands and treasures the forgiveness displayed in the gospel will be able to forgive, hear me, anyone for anything. And that's a hard thing to say. But if you even remotely begin to understand what you have been forgiven for against God. You'd be able to forgive anyone for anything. Now the motivation here is of the highest order. Just as Christ forgave you. Again, this is the paradigm for what forgiveness looks like for us. Now let me take a few moments to kind of work through something a little more on the theological side with you. Because I think it's important. Like to forgive or not forgive. To forgive or not forgive. What if the person has not repented or in your judgment repented enough? What do you do with forgiveness then? This is an interesting question, right? Now, I think if you've been around me long enough, my general answer to that has been no. You don't. I'm going to revise that a hair. I'm not going to change, I'm not going to change the ultimate goal in my own theology for that. But I'm going to further nuance it or further give clarity to it. So, because I think it, first of all, because I think it represents the text better. So, I think what, what I want to encourage you with, I want you to watch before your eyes someone growing in their knowledge of the Lord and being willing to go, okay, I need to alter that just a little bit. I need to refine that view just a little bit. And that's okay, that should be happening to all of us. Like, I didn't figure it all out when I went to seminary, right? Really, if anything, I just figured out how to figure it out. That's really what that taught me. The key is this, real quick. We have to distinguish between pardon and forgiveness. And I think that's the key. If we're going to understand forgiveness right, we have to understand pardon. What does it mean to pardon someone of their sins? So here, again, you have to understand the context. Forgiveness... Is being placed in the context of putting malice aside. So you got malice, anger, clamor, slander, bitterness over here. Like, this, like, overall, that picture says, I want evil for that person. I want ill for that person. I want ultimate harm for that person. On the other side, instead of that, we should be tenderhearted, kind. Forgiving. Now over here, is there anything dealing with the, the, the pardoning of their wrongdoing, right? That was where we made clear in the beginning that we're not talking about overlooking what they're doing wrong. We're talking about bitterness coming from inside. So on this side, we're not talking about pardoning them of, and overlooking anything they've done wrong. We're talking about dealing with our desire for evil towards them. Instead, being forgiving. So if Paul's not, here's, what, here's the key. He's not commanding us to remove all the consequences for the person's sin. That's pardon. And that doesn't have to happen for you to forgive them. Particularly if forgiveness is coming out of something inside of You. It may be just and necessary for the other person to suffer consequences for wrong. But the motive of the one imposing or requiring the consequences cannot be malicious. That's the point. That our hearts cannot be motivated out of, I want to give justice to them. I want revenge. I want them to feel my wrath. When we want people to feel our wrath, we're saying God's wrath is not sufficient. And listen, right? I mean, that's, I, I wish that was obvious, but it's not. God's wrath is much greater than ours. What he's saying, we are not permitted to desire the ultimate harm of the other person. That's pretty radical, right? We looked at the passage. In Luke, right? Where we are to love our enemies and turn the other cheek. How much more so in this relationship between brothers and sisters? I mean, does anyone here know of people that have left the church because of bitterness and broken relationship? Right? We all know someone. It's crazy if you understand this, it's just crazy. Guys, the gospel always provides hope, always seeks restoration. Someone who understands the gospel will always seek the restoration of the other person. That's what God's people are called to do. Now sometimes the government is called just to give punitive justice, like justice for justice sake. But you and I are always called to love our enemies. To always seek restoration. Justice for the sake of restoration. So forgiveness, listen, here's the key. Forgiveness does not require pardon from consequences. It requires an absence of malice. An absence of anger towards that person. No desire for that person's spiritual harm. Even in the application and the and the giving of those consequences. Think about this with children. Think about this with your kids. When you go to administer a punishment, so when you're going to spank, mom and dad, here's the question. Is that out of wrath in your heart? Because if it is, then you're being revengeful and abusive. You're saying, I'm going to hurt you, because you hurt me. I'm going to hurt you because you inconvenienced my time watching TV. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to hurt you because you hurt my feelings when you badmouthed me. But if you're forgiving, right? If you desire no ill will for your child, but instead you want what is best for them. You want them to see that there is a right way to live. And a wise way to live. And you want to help them, uh, help remove the foolishness from them. And you want them to see the glory of God. Then you will administer a punishment out of what's good for the child. Not out of wrath. That's what we're talking about here. That if you're forgiving of that child, forgiving of the wrong that they did, what you've done is you've released the malice you have toward them and now, listen, now you're free to administer the consequences in righteousness. Now take that and, and just move that out to our relationships with other people. I mean, certainly we're not walking around spanking, right? But you can't administer wrath to them in a thousand other ways, and the sky's the limit. Sometimes it's with harshness of words. Sometimes it's with coldness. And anything in between. So forgiveness does not require pardoning the consequences. It's it's about releasing and, and, and repenting ultimately of our wrath and anger towards them. So three evidences of someone who's understanding and getting the gospel and treasuring the gospel this kindness this tenderheartedness being forgiving now we're going to kind of jump into this next main point but it really is related particularly really to all three of these evidences and particularly the last one on forgiveness so i want you to see god's example of forgiveness and see it granted in christ Someone who is having a hard time forgiving someone else or someone who has a regular hard time forgiving their children or whatever the case is. Let me give you hope. Let me give you hope. He says at the end of verse 32, you should be this way as God and Christ forgave you. Let me state some things that should be rather obvious but we need to be reminded and understand these more deeply. The first one is this we were his enemies and yet he died for us. I've already said this multiple times before, we make it emphatic now. We were his enemies and yet he died for us. What does our world train us to think? You go put down your enemies, right? You go put them down. You deal with them. What do video games teach our kids? You put down your enemies. I mean, you understand we let our kids play those kind of video games, that's indoctrinating them. Teaching them to subdue their enemies when the Bible teaches the exact opposite. And we all have a you know, game system burning service, you know, later down the road. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you went, oh, good. I thought he was serious. <laughs> we were his enemies, and yet he died for us. And even still, listen, even still, even to this day, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for years or decades, we, we neglect following him. We abuse his grace. And yet, He still calls us His own and covers those sins with His blood. You see, nothing but kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness for His children. I mean, sure, sometimes His discipline doesn't feel kind to us, but it is kind to us. Why? Because He has no wrath left for you. When he gives you the rod, it's not out of wrath because he already spent it all. That bank account's empty, never to be filled up again. He already put it all on Jesus. So what he does in your life that feels unkind cannot be anything but kindness, tenderheartedness, and out of a forgiveness for his people. And so his example tells us the nature of true forgiveness. It's kind of a second thought underneath here is consider the way in which God has forgiven us. Consider the way. Consider the way. This is going to kind of be key as we wrap up today. In Christ, that's how he forgives us. In Christ, in Jesus Christ. I, I propose we stop talking about ourselves as Christians and stop talking about ourselves as, as uh, you know, even Christ followers. Let's call ourselves those who are in Christ. Because you know why? Because we need to be reminded that we're in Christ. And we need to be reminded of this for many, many reasons. But we're in Christ. That is the way God has forgiven us. Guys, it takes more than just the love of God for the forgiveness of of sins that's why this God of love thing that's all over our culture and God couldn't do that to 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 people and he's more loving than that just doesn't fit the bill it just fit the bill it it doesn't work it's not enough he forgives yes out of love but he forgives us in Christ God forgives sins in Christ for Christ's sake He forgives sins in spite of us. It's not because of any goodness in us or anything we have done or ever shall do that God forgives us. He does it, get this, entirely of His own free grace. It's all of God. It's all of His grace. And it's purely a gift. I think we forget this, right? So we forget this practically when we're unwilling to forgive someone else. When we want to withhold wrath towards them. Because we were enemies. Ungodly. Vile. But God forgave us freely. Forgave us freely in Christ. Now you and I must do that to others who are vile and ungodly and enemies and hateful. How much more should we do this for the person who just simply annoys us? I mean like right like, we should like see just the patheticness of some of this honestly. When we compare it to What should be motivating us and driving us and defining us and giving us the paradigm for life? The third thing I would tell you here is that we should remember how He did it. Remember how God forgave us, how He did it. Guys, God who owed us nothing because of His kindness. His tenderheartedness, His love, His grace, His mercy, His compassion—not only sent His beloved Son, but sent Him to the cross that you and I might be forgiven. He laid on Him. The scriptures tell us the iniquity of us all. Now, so, you see what Jesus, see what God's doing here. I don't get a heart ahead of myself. But what he does is he actually, in, in his provision of forgiving us, he actually takes on the wrath for us onto himself. Like the payment due, the punishment due, he takes on himself. That we were enemies, ungodly, vile, sinners, but God freely forgave us. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. this is how God has forgiven you. He bore the suffering himself in his own son. So instead of holding on to wrath against us which was justifiable wrath, he took it upon himself right? So start seeing the picture here begin to unfold. He took this justifiable wrath on to himself. And if he has done that for us, how can we possibly refuse to forgive another? So let me ask you, when you think about this enemy bearing the wrath for us, paying the iniquity of us all, does that make your heart tender? Like right now, right this moment, does that make your heart tender, or are you indifferent? Another quote from Jones here. He says, A man who knows forgiveness has got a broken heart. He realizes he is a vile wretch to whom God owes nothing, but for whom God sent His only Son. And the Son has borne all His sin and iniquity and salvation has been given as a free gift entirely and altogether and only in Christ." So the question is this, but who can express such forgiveness, perfectly or fully, when we have been grievously sinned against? Right? So here's the question, right? Who of us can actually do this perfectly and fully? That we can be totally and perfectly forgiving? (laughs) Right? I mean, the answer to that is none of us, right? The answer to that is none of us. Once again, we present, we're presented with something in the scriptures that you and I are incapable of actually doing. For this, we have to turn to the encouragement of Christ. Treasure and delight in the forgiveness of God. And your heart will be free to forgive others. Treasure and delight in the forgiveness of God. I'm kind of saying the same thing a little bit of a different way. He says, as God and Christ forgave you, once again, let's push through this a little bit further. As even when your forgiveness is not all that he requires, remember, God forgave you. Let me read for you Luke 6 30, 35, or I referenced this earlier and, and yesterday for that matter. But love your enemies. Listen to this and do good and lend. What is that? That's kindness, that's tenderheartedness, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind, listen to this, listen to this, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you hear that? Who's He talking about there? Us. Us. Be merciful. Why, why do I know it's us? Because in 36, be merciful, even as your Father is Merciful. So who are the ones He's kind to? Who are ungrateful and evil? His own children. He's merciful towards them. Guys, He, is even, he even forgives your lack of forgiveness that dishonors Him. I mean, see the irony? See the sweetness? Because we are made more willing to forgive when we see this to reflect the Christ likeness that is our own hope. When we do this, what happens? Right? When we live this out, what happens? We make Christ more real to those around us. How do we how do we experience Christ how do we experience Him practically? What is this graciousness to us? Well, one of the ways in which we experience Christ today is when we experience the forgiveness of others that is like and akin to Christ's forgiveness for us. And a second thought underneath here, we are to forgive in the way the Father has forgiven us. Kind of another angle here. It's not a future forgiveness, but it's a past reality. You see that? In Christ, we're forgiven, and it's a past reality, not a future thing. That's what we see here in the in the past, just in this passage. Just as Christ forgave you, not just as Christ is forgiving you, or just as Christ will forgive you, but just as Christ forgave you. For you, I guess it's that way, right? Past. Just as Christ forgave you in the past. The only people who will carry out this exhortation naturally and joyfully are those who know that God has forgiven them, nobody else. you see that? Do you understand that? So the question is this: Do you know that your sins are forgiven? This is one of the most fundamental struggles with people. They either think their sins are forgiven and really are not, or their sins are forgiven and they struggle to know that reality and remember it. So, do you know? Do you know your sins are forgiven? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know your sins are forgiven? I would ask you this question. Are you, out of motivation by the gospel, forgiving others? Are you? Are you forgiving people that, like, you just look at and you go, man, I just don't even know how I could forgive them. But I, man, marvelously, I'm forgiving. And you look at them and go, the only explanation I can think of It's because God's forgiven me of so much. Are you ready to forgive others who have harmed you and sinned against you? Again, we're not talking about pardoning their consequences. We're talking about confessing and ridding our hearts of malice and wrath and bitterness toward them. Are you ready to forgive others? So so the question again is, do you know that your sins are forgiven? How do you know? Are you forgiving others as motivated by the gospel? Are you ready to forgive others who have harmed you and sinned against you? Does the argument of Paul, the apostle here, appeal to your heart? Does it begin to mix up and stir your affections When Paul says, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, are you softened in your affections? Here's a question, do you feel melted? Are you ready to forgive at this moment? If you can answer yes to these kinds of questions, then be affirmed in your salvation. Be affirmed in the forgiveness of your sins. But listen, if bitterness is still controlling you, then I say be careful. You may not be redeemed. But if you're ready, Your heart is moved in that direction. You might still need to work through it and may still need to process it and pray and ask God for help, but your heart is turned that way. Then be affirmed. Be encouraged. And I would say, listen, the key to then moving towards the the forgiveness in its fullest sense would be a looking back to the forgiveness of the Father of your sins, of your sins, of your sins. So as we think about this a little bit further, think about burden or freedom, right? This is the, every time we come to the scriptures, we think about burden or freedom. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says this, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. As Paul climaxes this whole sentence with forgive each other as God and Christ has forgiven you. And this is much more. Here's the key, guys. This is much more than just do unto others as Christ has done unto you. And the reason it's more than that is because you will never, ever fully or perfectly love as Jesus loves. You will never perfectly and fully forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. So if this was all the word to the requirement to do as Jesus you know, do unto others as Jesus has done to you, then that would not be helpful. It would instead be a burden. It would just be another law. Rather, rather, Paul tells us to turn our eyes to see this commitment to forgiving, to have this forgiving attitudes and what these kind of actions accomplish. I want to read to you something that Brian Chapel said, pastors, on this passage. He says, by forgiving, we become not literally right, but practically, like, like, and helpfully and graciously, we become Christ to others. Listen to what he says here. By bearing in our bodies the weight of unjust accusation undeserved pain and retaliated harm we are the holy spirit's message of jesus to others by the practice of forgiveness we have the privilege of being a living witness to the one we most love and who has loved us eternally and sacrificially This is the ultimate motivation that gives us joy in our suffering, strength for obedience, and love for His commands. My life will never deserve His love. But my life can reflect His love. And because I love Him, I will live for Him in what I say and think and do. Listen, if you get this, this is not a burden. This is freedom. Some of you have been carrying around bitterness and wrath for other people, and it just controls your heart and mind and soul. And I'm telling you, you can let that go today. You can let that go today. How? You can't muster up the ability to do it. You have to turn to Christ. It is indeed freedom from the bondage of bitterness, wrath, and anger when we can display the forgiveness of Christ as we forgive others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and we'll sing. Father, I pray that um, in these next few moments, in these next few moments, that, that we see them as crucial moments. And we Every Sunday even, we would see these next couple minutes as crucial minutes where our heart is given the opportunity to respond in repentance and faith to the hearing of Your Word. That it's in these moments that That we either decide to turn to self-righteousness and legalism or it's in these moments that we turn and set the trajectory of dependence on the saving grace of our marvelous Father and the work of His Son Jesus and the application of it through His Holy Spirit. It's in these moments. Let our hearts turn the right way. Father, give us the grace to be delighted to turn in dependence on You. And Father, give us the grace to be a people that do not harbor bitterness for each other, but instead deal with it in our own hearts before the throne of grace. And then, only then, do we help a brother remove the speck from his eye. For many of us, the log we have to remove is the very thing Paul talked about in this passage. If I would turn our hearts to your graciousness and your forgiveness shown to us in the cross, that while we were still sinners, while we were still offensive to you, Jesus bore the wrath for us. May that tenderize our hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen.